Listening to the Noise Canceling Pod, the podcast about streamlining life, encouraging discourse, and maximizing your mind. Hosted by Frank Boyce and Axel Clark. Welcome back, everybody, to the Noise Canceling Pod. I'm Frank Boyce. And this is Axel Clark. We have a very exciting show for you today. This is episode 31, and we're talking to Matt Zeller from No One Left Behind. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thank you for having me. That's awesome. So it's been it's been a crazy week for you. So, you know, just to give people some background on No One Left Behind, why don't you just kind of introduce the the idea behind it and just a little bit of your background and why it's so strongly on your heart? Sure. Well, uh, I guess I should start off by saying uh, the only reason I'm even talking to you today is because of my Afghan translator. I I shouldn't be alive right now. I was an embedded combat advisor in uh, the Afghan war in 2008 as part of an army deployment to train and mentor the Afghan army and police. And uh, on my 14th day in country, my Afghan translator uh, saved my life by killing two Taliban fighters in a battle who were about to kill me. Uh, I made him a solemn promise that if I could ever uh, pay that life debt that I owed him, all he had to do was ask. But a year after I got back from the war, he called me up and said, hey, there's a bounty on my head. The Taliban are trying to kill me. I I think I'd like to apply for that visa you were always talking about, and I was hoping you might be able to sponsor me. And I said, sure, not a problem, thinking it would take six months, maybe to a year to get him a visa. How naive I was. Um, It ended up taking four years, and uh, by the time he got here, we had to make a pretty public stink about it, and I'm sure we'll get into that later. Um, but what ended up happening was, is I, I was picking him up at the airport and, uh, I learned basically at the airport, we as a country really don't do much for these guys. Uh, if anything at all, many of them end up homeless upon arrival. Had I not been there, he would have been homeless. And it just, it, you know, the, the thing that I kept thinking about over and over in my mind is this guy's a fellow veteran. I came home to a bunch of strangers cheering us in Atlanta. He was coming home to basically no one. And um, I decided I'd try to raise him some money and see if I couldn't help him get his life started. Well, long story short, when I tried to give him the money that we had raised to help him and his family get resettled in America, he refused to take it and instead insisted with, we, uh, we use it to start an organization. He said, can we use this to do for others what you've done for me, to get them their visa, to help find them a place to live and furnish it? And I would later on go on to get him a, a job in a car, and that was the birth of a little organization we call No One Left Behind. That was uh, almost three and a half years now ago, and uh, we're now in eight cities. And in that time, we've helped resettle over 4,000 people, and our mission is simple. We're going to continue to keep functioning, continue to keep fighting until we've gotten every single Afghan and Iraqi translator who served with us in the war, the visas that they were promised, get them here to the United States, pick them up at the airport, give them an honor flight welcome, find them a place to live, pay for that place for at least 90 days, fully furnish their home at no cost to them, get them a job and a car and an American family to mentor and guide them because, quite frankly, they're veterans. And uh, I think that's what they've earned. Absolutely. That's that's an incredible intro that you, you gave to the program. I think for, for a lot of people that don't know about the Special Immigration Visa Program, can you just talk about what the, the backlog is like? Yeah, sure. Um, so the SIV program was first started in 2006 for Iraqis. And at the time, they were allowed to bring 50 Iraqis a year to the United States, and you had to get the approval of a, of a general, uh, which is next to impossible. And really, almost no one came through that program. And well, at the same time, no one was getting through. The need was simultaneously increasing exponentially. You know, as the Iraq war went south and the insurgency really gained a foothold, those who had partnered with us to support us suddenly found themselves essentially excommunicated from the society around them. And then as the Afghan 
Afghan war uh, deteriorated, the same thing happened in Afghanistan. And so ultimately what ended up happening was in 2008 and 2009, Congress decided to pass two different laws, one pertaining to Iraq in 2008 and the other pertaining to Afghanistan in 2009, that would massively expand these programs uh, from 50 people a year to thousands of people potentially a year coming to the United States. And the way that it was supposed to work was as if you were an Iraqi or an Afghan, the, the deal that we made with you was, okay, if you give our military at least a year's worth of service and someone in our military deems that service both honorable and valuable, if you also happen to find yourself in duress because of service, so long as you could pass the most extreme form of vetting that we could possibly muster, we would extend uh, a visa to you and your immediate family to make it to the United States where you could be in safety. And under the original intention of the plan, we were supposed to give out 5,000 visas a year in Iraq and 1,500 visas a year in Afghanistan. Unfortunately, the State Department hated the program. And the attitude, the culture inside the State Department was best summarized as, if you're in doubt, keep them out. And so what they ended up doing was they ended up accepting hundreds, if not thousands, of applications every year. But instead of processing them, they were placed into filing cabinets and simply ignored. And so the tragedy of all of this was that the way the visas worked is, if you recall, I said they were authorized 5,000 visas per year for Iraq and 1,500 for Afghanistan. Well, let's say it was 2009. So in 2009, they could have given out 5,000 visas to Iraqis and 1,500 to Afghans. But let's say hypothetically they only got around to issuing 4,000 visas for Iraqis and 1,000 visas for Afghans, leaving 1,000 for Iraqis and 500 for Afghans. Those extra visas at the end of the year didn't roll over into subsequent years. They just disappeared. They disappeared into the bureaucratic ether, never to be seen again. And so what ended up happening was, was because the State Department was never processing the visas to begin with, this backlog kept growing and growing. And unfortunately, the allocated number of visas kept dwindling and dwindling because the programs were originally only supposed to last five years in total. So do your math. 5,000 times five is 25,000 for Iraqis. 1,500 times five uh, is 7,500 visas for Afghans. So let's just, let's just do a little thought experiment here. From 2009, which was the first year of the Afghan program, to 2013, we could have given out 6,000 visas in total. Would you like to wager as a, a guess as to how many we actually gave out in that time period? Axel, guess? I have no idea. 890. Wow. In 2011 alone, of the 1,500 possible visas we could have issued, we gave out three. Three. We left 1,497 on the table. So... What ended up happening was, was, and a lot of people don't know this, at the exact same time that my, my translator was trying to get his visa, and it really had come to this sort of culminating moment, the Iraq SIV program was actually set to sunset, meaning it was set to end. It was at the end of its fifth year, was 2013. And r- remind you, uh, remember, government runs on fiscal year, which is from October to October, right? So this was... At the end of September 2013, we're about to end that fiscal year. So it's the end of the fifth year of the program. And unfortunately, at that moment in time, there were roughly 17,000 Iraqis still in the backlog. And what the State Department had said was, if the Congress didn't extend the program for at least a couple of months, if not a year or two, that what they were going to do with all the applications that were pending was essentially delete them and shred the files. And pretend as if it had never happened before. And so you would have had 17,000 families that would have had gone through this entire process for naught. So another organization called the International Refugee Assistance Project reached out and said, would you mind helping us try and get an emergency extension of the Iraq program? And so not knowing really much of anything about the SIV program other than, you know, what it pertained to my individual Afghan, I said, sure. And I started talking to members of Congress, and it became fundamentally apparent to me that there were essentially three problems with the program itself. The first was the State Department was not compelled by law to 
actually process applications. They were only legally required to accept them. The second problem was they could deny a person's visa for any given reason. And they would and and the person who had applied did not have the right to know what the reason was for their denial. Would you like to know what the most popular reason for denying a person's visa was between 2008 and 2013? I have no idea. They misspelled their transliterated name. There's no standard naming convention for the name Muhammad in the U.S. government. In fact, it can vary from office to office. I mean, some offices spell it M-O-H-A-M-M-E-D. Others spell it M-U-H-A-M-M-E-D and so on and so forth. So they were essentially inventing reasons to just say no to people. And then they had the luxury of not having to tell that person why they had said no in the first place. So after I got Janice over here, and we had gotten the Iraq program extended for a couple of months, I went back to the the congressional contacts I had and I said, look, what we really ought to do is we ought to change the law. We ought to make it so that the State Department is legally required to not only accept obligations, but also process them within a given period of time. And that now that time now, by the way, is nine months. They're legally they're required to process a person's application within nine months of receiving it. I said we should also give applicants the right to learn why their visas haven't even been denied in the first place. And we should give them the right to appeal that, that decision. Because if it turns out that the reason that they were denied was because they misspelled their transliterated name, but everything else is good with the application, then why not let them reapply, you know? Mm-hmm. So those three things got passed into law in December of 2013. And they were transformative. Remember how I said in the first four years of the program, we only gave out 890 visas? Well, from years 2013 to 2014, that one year, we gave out 4,000 visas in Afghanistan alone. And the Iraq backlog has dwindled from 17,000 applicants in 2013 down to under 1,000 as of this year. So, you know, we're making at least progress in Iraq. In Afghanistan, unfortunately, we haven't, we have, there's just never been a proper allocation of visas. And the reason for that is when the program was first conceived, it was conceived prior to the U.S. surge in Afghanistan. So the way they went about trying to figure out how many visas they should ultimately allocate per year was Congress called up the DOD and they said, well, how many people do you think would qualify? And when they asked that question of, of our part of our you know, participation in the Iraq war, it was right at the height of the surge. And so DOD ran you know, a complex algorithm and they came back with 25,000. We think 25,000 Iraqi families will likely qualify for this program. When they asked the similar question of our, our commitment to Afghanistan, they came back, the footprint at the time was 30,000 U.S. troops. Hence the reason why they said only 7,500 families would likely be affected. But by the time the law went into effect in 2009, we had surged to over 100,000 U.S. troops. Now, with that surge of military personnel came a parallel surge in the hiring of locals in Afghanistan to be translators. And so the population of translators that were suddenly eligible for this visa and would meet the service criteria was vastly higher, vastly higher than the number of allocated visas. And unfortunately, it's remained that way ever since. So when we talk about the backlog, and I know this is a long answer to a simple question, but it's important. The backlog in Afghanistan right now currently stands at 10,000 families. And yet, we only currently have an allocation of 1,500 visas. I didn't think that was too long of an answer at all. I thought that was really complete. And, you know, I, I don't think, you know, I've, I have some friends within your organization and, and they've given me some good background and I've, I've done some research myself, but it's just not, not widely reported you know, all the things that these people go through just to get that application in and go through the whole process, only like you said, to be turned away for whatever reason before that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, they, you know, the, the process in itself, I argue, begins at the point that they're hired. So let's, to even be allowed to apply, to just have the permission to have your application even considered, they have to demonstrate that they at least served with U.S. forces for a year and that that service is both deemed both honorable and valuable by somebody who is either a member of the United States military or a civilian member of the U.S. government. So how did they get that job in the first place? Well, it wasn't like people walked up to our bases in Iraq and Afghanistan and you know yelled at 
the wall, hey, I speak English. And everyone was like, yeah, here, here's a gun. Go on patrol. They were, they were vetted. They were polygraphed every six months as a term of their employment. You know, I, at least on my base, we listen, you know, their phone calls were monitored, their emails were monitored, and we trust them, trusted them to such a given extent that we, we armed them and asked them to go on patrol with us in some cases. You, you take a person like that who's already been through that level of extensive betting just to have a job, and then you give them the opportunity to apply for this visa, and you add, they add on additional screening. And what that additional screening is, is after they've proven that, yeah, they've got the recommendation of a U.S. military service member and that they've also been able to prove that somebody is actively trying to harm them or their family because of the service they provided us. Once that's all been verified, the last step, and it's by far the most arduous and difficult to get through, and, it, and the average time, by the way, and I'll tell you at the end of this how long it, it takes on average to get through it, but the last step is they have to pass what we call a national security background investigation, i.e. extreme vetting. So what does that entail? Because there's been a lot of discussion of this in the, in the news. Well, essentially it means every single three-letter agency that you would hope would be involved in the screening of an individual before we make a decision to let them come into this country has to weigh in. So the CIA, the FBI, the NSA, the Department of Homeland Security, DHS, the Drug Enforcement Agency, the DEA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, the DIA, so on and so forth. Every single one of them has to do their own independent investigation into every single person on an application. So if a father applies for himself, his wife, and his two little children, the wife, the kids, and the dad, they're all investigated. And they're all investigated by each agency individually. It's not one big investigation. It's actually many, many separate investigations. So the CIA does their own investigation and the FBI does their own investigation. And by design, the person at CIA does not know their counterparts at FBI and vice versa. And that's to prevent collusion. So when they go through these screenings at the end of it, the decision to let them in the United States must be unanimous. One agency says no. Let's say hypothetically I was applying for a visa and the CIA and the FBI and the NSA said yes, but the DEA said no. Not only would I be barred for, from entering the United States for life, I'd also be placed on the no-fly list forever. That's the level of scrutiny that they have to pass just to get a visa. If I'm Al-Qaeda or the Taliban or ISIS, this isn't the visa program I'm taking advantage of to sneak people in the United <laughs> yeah. States. You know what I'm saying? Like, right. I'm sneaking somebody in on a tourist visa or a student visa. Or, or hell, I'm, I'm sending them up to Canada and telling them to walk across the border in Montana or buying a yacht and sailing from the Caribbean, you know, into mm -hmm. some small port in Florida or California. This is not how bad people are sneaking folks into the U.S. Um, it when You know, when, when folks say that, Afghan and Iraqi special immigration visa holders are the most heavily scrutinized immigrants that we possibly allow to enter in the United States. They're not kidding around. And if people sort of measure this by the amount of time that one person spends in, in, in being investigated, I think it'll comfort a lot of folks who might be concerned about the vetting of these people to know that on average, it takes three years to get through this process. That's three years of looking into somebody's background and monitoring them before a decision is made. Th this is the safest we possibly can make in immigration, period, the end. So this all kind of came to a head, you know, last week with uh, the new executive order. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, what's the last week been like for you communication wise and, you know, just handling, I'm sure, uh, a deluge of requests from both the media and interpreters around the world? Yeah, um, I haven't simply put. I haven't had a, a week this busy since I got home from the war, and I, you know, I've, I've I've done a little bit since I got back. Um, Friday afternoon, we knew in advance that the the executive order was going to be coming coming out. We had seen the draft, and so we had a couple of days to prepare for it. Um, what we couldn't have possibly prepared for was the Afghan and Iraqi response to it. 
essentially everybody panicked. Um, the executive order came down, and within 12 hours, we already had 1,500 requests for help. Uh, Iraqis calling us from airports all over the world saying, hey, you know, I have a valid visa. I'm supposed to be traveling to the United States either that day or in, in a number of cases, they had valid visas, but their planes weren't supposed to leave and, you know, for a month or two. And they said, well, the hell with it. Let's just try and do it now before it's too late. And they were, you know, they were, I, there's one guy on, I, I, that stands out in my mind. He has, he was going to Turkey and from Turkey onto the U S so they flew from Baghdad to Turkey. And then from Turkey, they're supposed to go to the U S and they got, they were 10 minutes, 10 minutes away from taking off. They had pulled away from the gate when the plane had to turn around, go back to the gate, and Turkish police got on the plane and pulled him and his wife and kids off and sent them back to Iraq. Now, put yourself in their shoes for a second. You're leaving Iraq because somebody's trying to kill you. You can't stay behind. The service that you gave the United States of America has excommunicated you from the society around you. Meaning, not only are there bad guys trying to kill you, but your neighbors are more more than likely to turn you into those bad guys rather than hide you. So there's no safety or salvation. You have to leave. So what do you do? Well, you do what I think any one of us would do if we were moving to a new country. You'd quit your job. You'd sell your house. You'd sell your possessions. It's not like you want, you know, you might really love your couch and TV, but chances are you're not going to pay to have them shipped all the way to America, Right. And if you had kids, you'd pull them out of school. This guy did all of that. And he was 10 minutes away from his flight to freedom and safety. And they sent him back to the killing fields. Except this time now he's homeless, he's unemployed, he's possessionless, and his kids can't go to school because they've already been pulled out. And they don't want to re-enroll them because they don't want to tip people off that they're back in country. And now he's wondering if he's going to live. That guy is the microcosm of every single Afghan or Iraqi who on Friday afternoon saw the executive order being signed. And they said to them, like, I picked up a guy in the airport on Sunday afternoon. And when we asked him, when did you decide to leave Afghanistan? He said, I was at work when the president's executive order was signed. I went home, packed my bags, bought a plane ticket, and put my wife and kid and I on the next plane to America. We didn't even think twice. We didn't look back. We just went. Um. Since Friday, our organization has fielded a total of roughly 4,000 requests for assistance. Most of these people are abroad, have a valid visa or an application in the pipeline, and are desperate to learn whether or not we're going to honor our commitment to them as a country. That's, I mean, that's astonishing. You know, I think just hearing it from you and hearing hearing those stories, I mean, I know it's been really heavy on most people's hearts last week but that's i mean the personal story of that is just it, it's heartbreaking honestly i mean how how have you really how have you dealt with the anger and the frustration and you know kind of feeling like you've gotten over hurdles the last few years going to you know take two steps back in in the last six months well You know, there's basically been, basically been two other organizations that have sort of stood shoulder to shoulder with us throughout this entire time. Uh, the first is uh, an organization called Veterans for American Ideals. They're, they're incredible. They're run by a retired Marine lieutenant colonel named Scott Cooper, who's a veteran of uh, Bosnia, Iraq, and Afghanistan. And then the other organization is the International Refugee Assistance Project, which are all the lawyers that you've probably seen on TV sitting at airports. They, they come from that organization. Um, other than that, you know, if you sort of count the three of us as a, as a partnership, it's felt like we've been alone in the guard tower for the last three years with mm -hmm. no relief. We've just been on watch defending the line by ourselves. Now it feels like the division just showed up and we don't have to fight alone anymore. And so I'm actually really hopeful. Um, as, as challenging as this week has been for us, the, the, the lemonade that we've made out of these lemons is that there are now millions of people who know about this program and more importantly, know about the sacrifices that our Afghan and Iraqi brothers and sisters have made on behalf of our country. And if there is one thing that I, I had hoped to sort of try and instill in the American psyche, it wouldn't be the name no one left behind or, you know, 
or even what we do programmatically, it would be the sacrifices of these people and the understanding that in reality, they're American veterans. I mean, that's how we have to look at these people. If a veteran of this country is defined by somebody who goes to war and fights on behalf of it and its ideals and for its people and its safety and security, how can you not count these people as veterans? You know, uh, the only the only difference between me and the guy who saved my life, that there's two of them. The first one is I won the birth lottery and he didn't. Mm-hmm. I got to be born in the greatest country in the history of human civilization. And he had the misfortune of being born in Afghan the year before the Soviets invaded. That That's, that's the difference that a lot of people want to focus on. That's not important to me. The... the the difference that's important to me is that I'm a one-tour combat veteran. And if if anybody's counting tours, he's an eight-tour combat veteran. He did eight years consecutively. You know, I left, and he went to the next unit and the next mission. And I went home to my family and to safety. And he kept fighting on our behalf. And he kept fighting, and he kept fighting, and he kept fighting. And he's been blown up six times. He's had to kill to save American lives on five separate occasions. He's got, you know, all of the the hallmarks of a combat veteran, but yet none of the benefits. No one calls him a veteran. No one looks at, you know, publicly speaking, most Americans don't consider him to be a veteran. Our organization has reached out to just about every foundation you can think of for support. And it's so disheartening when, when we present what we do and then we get back, oh, my God, we love what you do. It's amazing. Unfortunately, we can't support you because your, your, your organization only works with these people. And they're not technically veterans. And our funding is really only tied to veterans. Perhaps you should try organizations that help out refugees. And then you go to people who fund refugees and they tell you, yeah, we'd love to help you out. But aren't these people really veterans? Isn't this more of a veterans issue? And you just it, it becomes profoundly frustrating, right, because – you know, everyone sort of wants to pass the blame to everyone else and no one wants to take responsibility for these people. And so that's ultimately why we started this organization. Both, you know, I, having watched how little support there was in the way of Janice uh, and his, and his resettlement, I I recognize that when he asked us to use the money that we had raised for him to start this organization, that he was onto something. He could see it himself. He could see it wasn't enough and that the best thing we could possibly do is to try to make it better for everybody else. And, you know, I think that's the, that embodies the, the veteran ethos right there. He's trying to leave it better for the next guy. You know, he's trying to make it better for the next guy. And that isn't that, I mean, if that's not the most American patriotic military thing, I don't know what is. Because, I mean, that not that what we were all taught in the military is you leave it better for your buddy? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. What's the status of the program now as it relates to the, the executive order? Well, so as of Monday, we, we kind of won. Um, the acting uh, director of customs and the acting administrator of customs and border patrol has said that um, that Iraqi special immigration visa recipients uh, will be in fact allowed into the United States and uh, will not be turned away. Um, we have yet to see anyone attempt a flight. Um, there's actually a law in the books that says if an airline even if it's accidental, flies someone to the United States that is not allowed to come here, they're charged, you know, just a fortune uh, in in fines and penalties. And so, all of the airlines right now are still refusing, as far as we can tell, allowing Iraqis to fly to the U.S. Now, whether or not that changes in the coming days is to remain to be seen. I know that, for example, the first of our Iraqi clients, again, the guy who actually was in Turkey and got pulled off the plane, he's due to land in in New York this weekend. So let's see if he makes it. Now, for the Afghans, you'll probably point out, you know, and your listeners will probably be aware, Afghanistan wasn't on the list of, you know, quote-unquote banned countries, one of the seven countries listed. But the refugee program was affected. Now, SIVs, from the government standpoint, aren't counted as refugees. But when it comes to flying them out of Iraq and Afghanistan, they all take the same flight as refugees. So by halting refugee immigration for 120 days, the practical effect of that halt is a halt for the next 120 days to all of the 
flights that would normally fly people out of Iraq and Afghanistan. So the only thing that's left available to them are plane tickets that they can buy themselves. And most Afghans are simply too poor to be able to buy to buy their plane ticket from Afghanistan to the U.S. And so what is what we're seeing? We've already had we've had two clients who have reached out to us since uh, Sunday alone, and they've said that they've had their plane tickets canceled on them. Um, our fear now is that what's going to end up happening in the next 120 days, uh, unless people can afford to buy their own plane ticket to come here, they're not going to be able to make it. And by the way, I want to I should I should note when they are provided a plane ticket. That ticket isn't free. They still have to pay the government back for the cost of that ticket. They're just given four years to do so. So most people actually arrive here several thousands of dollars in debt with a bill that they have to start paying the very next month after they arrive. That's that's insane. That really is insane to, to like you said, treat veterans like that. Because if if we did that to, you know, our normal veterans people would be going crazy and marching in the street. General Petraeus was kind enough to sit down for an interview with us last year over the summer. And at one point we asked him about this and he said, I think we need to be very concerned that people are watching and they're looking to see how we treat our veterans, all veterans. And that if people come to think that we won't honor our commitments to our current veterans, why should they then trust us to honor that commitment? in future wars. And, you know, his point is spot on. Um, we're being evaluated in a, in a very, very um, scrutinous manner. Uh, that's why this is ultimately an issue of national security. If we fail to honor this promise, what's going to end up happening is the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, they're going to hunt these people down and they're going to kill them. And it's not going to be a bullet to the back of the head. The way that they kill these people is they make them get on camera and they make them confess on camera that they worked for the Americans and that they're about to die because they worked for the Americans. And then they butcher them. They cut them into little pieces. They light them on fire. You know, name the most horrific way you can think of dying at the hands of another human being. And that's what they do to these people, but they film it. And then they take these snuff films, right, and they send them into places like Yemen and Syria and Libya and even Iraq and Afghanistan, which we're still fighting in. And the whole point of these videos is to convince those audiences not to partner with us, that partnering with us is, in fact, a death sentence. And so, you know, I'm not supposed to be here today. I, I should be dead. The only reason I'm not dead is because Janice, at some point when he was first recruited by an American, believed that we as Americans keep our word and that we would honor this commitment that we made to him. I've even asked him, what if you didn't trust us? He said, I never would have worked with you guys, if I, especially given the threat to my family. I would never have put them in jeopardy or in danger, but I believe that Americans keep their word and their promise. When I, I was enlisted for two years before I, the army said I could stop working for a living and become an officer. And, uh, <laughs> I remember when I, w I got commissioned, you know, you do your first salute with an NCO and the NCO that I asked to give me my first salute was a, uh, a master sergeant named Sergeant Myers. And, uh, I, he pulled me aside and he said, um, sir, it's so weird to have him call me, sir. Cause you know, five seconds prior, it'd been something else. And, uh, he said, sir, do you know, what your number one responsibility is now that you're an officer. And I, I, I said to lead and he goes, no, take care of soldiers. You take care of your soldiers. They'll take care of you. Best advice anybody given me in the army. And it remains some of the best advice I've ever given in my life. 12 years later, when it was ultimately time for me to take off the uniform for the last time, my commander at the time pulled me aside and he said, do you know what your responsibility is now that you're, you're getting out? And I said, to relax and drink a beer? And he goes, no, it's to continue to take care of soldiers. This is how I see I continue to live that commitment, right, is I had the luxury of being able to go to war with a world that believed the Americans keep their word. But if we leave these people to die, it's not like Vietnam, you know? It's not like, you know, I've talked to a number of Vietnam vets, 
And universally, they'll tell you that they've had to live with a half century, 50 years of moral injury. The moral injury being the memories of the Vietnamese allies that we left behind to be tortured, butchered, imprisoned by the Vietnamese communists, people that we quite frankly could have saved. It's a shame that they've had to live with, you know, and an injury It's nothing less than an injury that they've had to live with now for the better part of a half century. And yet you'll be hard pressed to find any videos of uh, all of that torture and imprisonment and, and murder, right? Because when we left Vietnam, we took all of the newsreel cameras with us. But this time, this time the enemy has a cell phone, just like you and I, and access to a global internet. And so that moral injury is, is going to be passed on to our current generation of veterans in a very visible way if we don't honor this commitment. But moreover, the evidence for not honoring that commitment will last forever, and it's going to come back to haunt us in every single commitment that we, military commitment or engagement that we have going forward. I mean, imagine, God forbid, we end up putting significant boots on the ground in Syria in the next six months. How should we ever expect reasonably any Syrian to trust us when all they have to do is point to these growing numbers of of murder, you know, videos of Afghan and Iraqi translators who worked with us and simply say, look, I'd love to help you out, but I've seen the videos. I know what happens to people who you make promises to. They end up dead. I'm sorry. I love my family and life too much. I, I'm not going to help you out. You know, at that point, you start asking yourself, okay, well, if no one's going to assist us, then how many Americans are going to end up needlessly dying in future wars when their lives could have ended up being saved by just simply having a local with them to either prevent uh, an, an argument from going out of hand or, in my case, to literally return fire against the enemy when necessary. Yeah, I think that's that's a great extrapolation of, you know, second and third order consequence. Effects. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think one thing that I'm struck by your story about is just really how you know, these weren't necessarily things that were directly on your heart right right when you came back that, you know, it kind of circled back around and, and you just picked up and said, yes, I'm, I'm going to do this. And, you know, it seems like you've, you've kind of continued that trend throughout. Is that, is that kind of a way that you try to live life or has that just been kind of a, a result of consequence? I never in a million years thought I'd be doing this. <laughs> um, I see this as, as quite frankly, the, the, what my, another way of serving my country. Um, and I don't think I'm necessarily the best person to even be do, doing this, but no one else was there doing it. And I saw a problem that just kept going unresolved and unresolved, and I finally said, out of hell with it, I need to do something about this, because if no one else does, I'm going to end up living with that moral injury too. You know, Janice, the guy who saved my life, wasn't the only translator that I worked with in the war. I, I'm sure, like many of your viewers, I'm on Facebook. These people ping me all the time asking, when are we going to keep that commitment? When are we going to honor that, you know, that, that commitment and keep this promise? And I just couldn't go to bed at night comfortably thinking that we were just going to abandon these people. Um, I, I, I just, I don't know, maybe I got, I, I paid too much attention in basic training, but on day one, somebody kept telling us we don't leave anybody behind in the battlefield. We don't leave anybody behind in the battlefield. Why should we leave these people behind? Absolutely. Once you, once you realize that the problem was with the law, how did you go about trying to change law? Like how did you decide that, that you could do something and then what, and then what to do to change it? So I, uh, I had the, obviously the fortune of living in Washington, D.C., so you know, going and talking to Congress is a matter of getting on a train for me and riding 20 minutes as opposed to a lot of other people who have to take a plane flight here. Um, but what I ended up doing was is I ended up realizing, okay, Congress kind of works like any other large organization. They try to divvy up problems into small groups to basically manage for everybody else. And so – 
every sort of niche issue in Congress has their respective members who have sort of been um, identified by each party as, okay, you're going to be the subject matter expert on this issue. And when it comes to this issue, we're going to look to you for guidance. And on this issue in particular, it's four people. In the House of Representatives, it's an uh, Air Force veteran named Adam Kinzinger, who's a Republican from Illinois, and a guy named Earl Blumenauer, who is a Democrat from Portland, Oregon. I'd point out, by the way, that Congressman Kinzinger and Blumenauer um, probably don't agree on much of anything at all, but on this, they're in lockstep. And I just love that because that's how the Congress is supposed to work. You're supposed to be, you know, the Congress is supposed to function in that people figure out the areas where they agree and they come together to work on those areas. And then when they disagree, they just simply agree to disagree and move on. But they don't let that disagreement affect get in the way of doing good work elsewhere. In the Senate, the two people who are principally responsible for this issue are Senator Jean Shaheen. She's from New Hampshire. She's a Democrat. And probably shockingly and surpri- unshockingly or not surprisingly to anybody is Senator McCain from Arizona. Um, you know, given his extensive military heroism to our, our country, you can probably see why this is of significant concern to him. And once I identified sort of who these four people were, it became a matter of trying to get a meeting. And what I learned is that um, to get a meeting with a member of Congress, uh, if they're not your individual member of Congress, the best way to do it is find somebody who happens to be one of their constituents and call that person up and say, hey, would you mind calling your member of Congress and asking them to take a meeting with me. Um, and from there, it's you know it's a matter of just showing up to the meeting and understanding how the game is played. So I called a buddy of mine who had extensive experience working with Congress and sort of trying to pitch issues to them. And he said, look, when you go to this meeting, you want to have what's called a one-pager, which is a one-page summary of the problem and essentially what your proposed solution is. It needs to be pretty cogent you know, and uh, pretty simple to understand. And if you can talk about it in a way that you can make um, personal and impassioned, you're more likely to uh, get some people paying attention to you than not. And so I learned right off the bat that the best way to make people sit up and pay attention was to tell them the story about how I almost died, to tell them about my alive day. And, um, you know, if I'm being honest, it's almost become almost a form of therapy because Four years ago, I could barely talk about that day with anybody. Now I talk about it multiple times a day, and it's really helped me to try to overcome a lot of the uh, the, the the difficulties I came home with the war with, and, and some of the you know some of the the hardships that uh, I personally, the demons, the inner demons that I carried back from Afghanistan, have really been exercised in a way from in talking about this over and over again. But I also learned that that narrative was so powerful that people sat up and they took notice, and I personally personalized it for them in a way that that most of the that was the meeting that quite frankly you could tell at the end of it was going to stand out in their mind for the rest of the day that they were going to go home and if they talked with a loved one about how their day they're like let me tell you about this veteran who came to my office and really opened my eyes up to this issue all i had to do is take four meetings and then from there allow them you know to, to just support them as best as i could the other way that I, we really elevated this issue to change the law was i um I just reached, I, I hustled. I reached out to every single person in media I could find. And it wasn't just me like cold calling, you know, every, I, there's that old Kevin Bacon, you know, rule. Everybody is like six degrees separated on the planet from one another. Right. Well, it's kind of, it's kind of true. And so, you know, I didn't know really anybody in media at the time, but I had a number of friends who did. And when I called them up and told them what I was trying to do and that I needed to get my story out there. And that I would really appreciate, you know, maybe talking to a reporter. All it eventually took was getting to one reporter at Yahoo News. And he put out one story that they were fortunate. I was fortunate enough and they were kind enough to put on the front page of Yahoo.com globally. And it went viral for about a day. And from there, I learned that if other reporters call you, drop what you're doing and take their call and get your story out there. Because the more people learn about your story, the more the offers for helping come in. And um, it was that point, just only a matter of time before we sort of had this critical mass of, of ultimately what gets Congress to move, right? A c- compelling story, uh, an easily identifiable problem with an easy solution, and then probably most important to them, media attention. Because media attention, one, gives them a 
an, an avenue to highlight the good that they've done. But on the other hand, if they don't help you out, it gives you a hammer with which to bludgeon them. And they understand that as well. If they don't assist you, you're likely going to make their lives a living hell for not helping you out. So what I we, we've actually taken that entire lesson and formed uh, an operation that we call Operation Lost in Translation, where we teach other veterans who want to help get their translators' visas how to essentially get Congress to be on their side and then harass the executive branch via the State Department to expedite individual visas through the processing. So do you think without the Yahoo article and all that and the media thing, it, it wouldn't have happened or would have happened more slowly? How much no, do you I, think that was, a, that was like a key part of it? 100%. If we didn't have that media attention, Janice would be dead today. I'm oh. convinced of it. We, we, that media attention can honestly embarrass the government into doing the right thing. Wow. <laughs> right, so what other, what other questions do you have? Um, what I think, what can people do right now to help, help you guys out and, uh, to help out no one left behind and then what can we do to help the SIV program? Yes. So the, the first thing is, is, uh, we need, uh, we need as many people as we can get right now to the fight. So I'd ask people to go to our website, noonelef.org, and uh, send us a message. Sign up to volunteer, uh, especially if you're in one of our eight chapter cities. We've got, uh, and we're going to be opening up a couple more this year, but right now we've got chapters in Boston, Rochester, New York, Washington, D.C., Chicago, Illinois, Omaha, Nebraska, Denver, Colorado, uh, San Francisco, and San Diego, California. And we're hoping to open up in Pittsburgh. Uh, Houston and S Seattle at the very least this year. I'm also going to try to hopefully open up in San Antonio if we can as well. Um, so are your are the just are the chapters are they mostly focused on helping people once they get here, or are you still yeah, trying to help yeah. people to get into the program no, and through it? Yeah, no, no. So that's a great point. Let me let me back up. We have three operations. The first is Operation Lost in Translation, which is where we help translators get their visas and. The way that we do that is if a translator comes to us, we say, okay, first thing you should do is we're going to get you partnered up with our legal our legal team through the International Refugee Assistance Project, IRAP. They're going to provide you with a free U.S. immigration attorney, pro bono, no money whatsoever. They're just going to help you out for free. They're going to make, they'll help you fill out your application, make sure you get your paperwork in on time, all that good stuff. From there, then we ask, we ask them to find us an American with whom they served and send that American to us. And then we teach that American-born veteran to do exactly what I did for my guy, Janice, how to get the media involved and get some media attention for your guy, how to get as many members of Congress as you possibly can to support your efforts to get that person's visa expedited. Because the only, the only way the State Department will expedite a visa is essentially if like 15 members of Congress are sort of all at once sending them a letter or phone call saying, you know, wh what's going on with so-and-so's visa because they want to get it. They want to get the congressional pressure off their back. I mean, that's, that's what you're trying to do is build up enough pressure that somebody says, Oh, the heck with it. I'm sick and tired of hearing from all these members of Congress. Somebody get Muhammad's file and let's just get this figured out by Friday. So you know, th is, that's what we're trying to do. Is the slow part still, uh, the administrative processing within the state department or just is, do you need pressure throughout the vetting process as well? No, the, the slow part is the administrative processing, which actually is not That's the outrageous. purview. It's not the State Department's fault. It's really the Department of Homeland Security. But um, there, we, we send sort of the similar message to both entities, right? Um, once the person gets their visa and comes to the U.S., then they fall in our Operation Welcome Home. And that's where the bulk of our volunteers get involved. The, the first way volunteers get involved is we ask them to come with us to airports and help us help us do an honor flight welcome. You know, stand in baggage claim with us, applaud them as they get off. We, we you know, we, we try to get a big group together. We give them a huge round of applause when they get when they come out from, you know, customs to pick up their their luggage. Uh, we all we try to have a bunch of signs that say welcome home. Thanks for your service. But then most importantly, we present them with their flag, the American flag, because this is their country now, and they've earned that flag through their service to it. 
And one of the unique things of these visas is they're actually given green cards as soon as they immigrate and put on a pathway to citizenship within five years. Uh, that's that way that pathway to citizenship is moved up to one year if they choose to join the military. And I've personally enlisted four guys who we've helped get visas come over here into the military. Like as soon as they get off the plane, they ask, I want to, how can I sign up to serve? I want to continue to you know, stay in the fight, but I want to do it now as an American citizen. I think that's, that's pretty awesome. Once we get them welcomed here, the next thing we do is we find them a place to live and we furnish that place. And so we ask volunteers to help us pick up donated furniture or new furniture that we've bought for them and, and actually deliver it to their home. And inevitably what ends up happening is somebody who helps us deliver furniture probably will end up forming a personal relationship with the family we're assisting. And they'll ultimately say to us, you know, I'd, I'd really like to just focus my volunteer efforts on this one family. I've, I formed a bond with them. And we say, great, we'd like you to become what we call our first friend. First friends are the people that, you know, will help you fill out your taxes, apply for a job, figure out the bus system in your local community, you know, where, where the best playgrounds are for your children to play at. It will invite you over to your ho their home on Thanksgiving when you have no one else to spend it with, that type of thing. Um, and then finally, our last operation is Operation Got Your Back, which is where we, we will actually buy them a car and help them you know, get a job. Um, we need volunteers for all three operations. Right now, we actually, if, if, so as I say, if you're in one of the eight chapter cities, we most need you for Operation Welcome Home, in which we, you either help us welcome someone at the airport, deliver furniture to their home, or actually become their first friend. But if you're not in one of those eight cities, or even if you are and you're just not physically able to help out in that way, we really need people for Operation Lost in Translation. Like I said, since last Friday alone, we've received 4,000 pleas for assistance. I'd say 3,950 of them are from Afghans and Iraqis overseas who are either in some stage of the visa process and, and need help finding that American. And then more importantly, we need help training that American and how to become that person's advocate. We need as many volunteers as we can muster for that. So I'd say go to nooneleft.org, sign up to a volunteer. If you're, you know, if, if you're able to and you've got the spare dollars, every dollar that we could raise helps. We don't take a dime from the government. Like Unlike any of the other quote-unquote refugee resettlement organizations in this country, we don't take a dime of government funding. Um, everything that we do is raised through private individuals. Um, you know, none of us are getting rich off of this either. We try to give, uh, for every dollar raised, it's our goal to give 85 cents to 90 cents of every dollar to the people we assist. The rest of it goes, quite frankly, to to paying for the, the three other people who work in this, this organization with me who are on payroll. There's only four of us total in the whole country who actually get paid to do this. Everyone else is a volunteer. And then, you know, the programs that we actually do ourselves uh, in terms of, you know, some of the back end stuff. I, I've learned a lot in running a nonprofit. I learned, for example, that it roughly costs about just $20,000 a year alone to register yourself. And you have to register in all 50 states. Even if you don't have an office in Montana, you have to register with Montana for the privilege of being able to fundraise in Montana. Now, I'm going to tell you this. I don't I think we have a, we might have one donor in all of Montana, but the fact that he donates to us through our website and the fact that he can access our website in Montana means we're technically soliciting donations in Montana. So every year I got to pay the state of Montana a couple hundred bucks for the privilege of being in existence. Now multiply that by 50 and the cost of doing that alone counts out to $10,000. It costs another $10,000 just to, ha to have ourselves audited every year as the IRS requires us to. So that's 20 grand every year that we have to raise just to legally be in business. Um, you know, it, 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 that's what I'm saying. If, if folks have the ability to donate, every dollar helps. Those are really the two best ways. And then ultimately share this, share this podcast amongst your friends and family, because, you know, up until a week ago, obviously you guys who have served know all about this issue, but people who haven't served had likely never, I, I mean, I'm, I'm still dumbstruck by the number of people who have called me in the last week and said, I had never heard of this. I had no idea it was going on. I can't believe this is going on. It just shows to it just goes to show you how few of our fellow citizens have been paying attention to the war efforts for the last fifteen years, and that's actually, by the way, why I'm 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 kind of so energetic and nervous about this. I think we 
have at best maybe seven more years to accomplish this mission. And what I mean by that is I think seven years from now, if we haven't gotten the majority of these people home, they'll likely all have been killed by the people that we asked them to help us fight. I mean, that's the real tragedy of this is that they're being hunted by the very people we asked them to help us fight. And those are going to be the people who ultimately be responsible for murdering them. But also seven years from now, I don't think we'll have the attention or the sympathy of the American people like we do now. And the reason for that is, well, seven years, you know, and seven years from now, that's going to be 2024. That will have been almost 25 years since 9-11. So let's just, let's just say it's, you know, 25 years from 9-11 would be like the end date, 2026. That's the same amount of time that, en- that passed from the end of the Vietnam War to 9-11. Wow. Yeah, so when you start thinking of it in those terms, you realize, yeah, 9-11, you weren't really concerned about what had happened in Vietnam, were you? No. No, no. So why <laughs> would anybody be concerned about what happened in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, with that amount of time having passed? I, I just, I don't think we have that much time. And so we're really up against the clock here. So if your people are thinking of supporting us tomorrow, we will welcome it tomorrow, but we really need it today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, from my perspective, it's it's heartbreaking to watch. But at the same time, you know, honestly, just sitting down and getting to chat with you about this and, you know, feeling your passion and the progress and the enthusiasm, you know, gives me hope. And, uh, you know, I, I hope that we can help in, in some small way. And, and I know I'm going to be logging on tonight and, and helping in the ways that you just described. Axel, do you have anything else? Uh uh, the only thing I have left is, uh, so our friend Trevor put us in contact with you. He's been helping you out recently. So uh, He's the best. So that's, I was going to say, if I, before I, I know I cut you off there and I apologize, but I, I got to talk Trevor up for a second. <laughs> All right. So this is how much of there is an opportunity with us and, and quite frankly, how we embrace it. Trevor was somebody who came to us a couple of weeks ago and said, hey, I'd like to help. And now he's the co-director of Operation Lost in Translation. If you're willing to put in the effort and you show us that you, you, know, you, can, you can deliver, there's an opportunity for you. And if I find a way to be able to pay Trevor, I'm going to hire him. And I'm going to put him on payroll. And I'm going to employ him to do this because he is amazing at what he does. And his enthusiasm and his energy is, is second to none. And, you know, and that's, that's the opportunity here. He was somebody who also saw a problem, and he's just jumped. He's not even just jumped in with both feet. He dove in headfirst. Um, our director of resettlement, Micah, Micah came to us two and a half years ago. I found her because she was chat. She had reached out to us, I guess, several times via email. But we had, you know, got, her email got lost in the multitude of others that had come in. And so one day, I had she commented on something we put on our Facebook. And oh, by the way, I, your view for your listeners, I'd also ask that. Uh, at the very least, go ahead and like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. Facebook, we're easy to find where no one left behind, but on Twitter, we're N1LEFT behind. No one left behind, but N1 left behind on Twitter, at N1 left behind. Um, Micah, Micah basically put a comment up on one of our Facebook posts, which essentially was, you know, if you guys are serious and actually trying to help people, you would get back to me because I've been working in refugee resettlement now for seven years. And I wrote her back that night and I said, look, you just volunteered yourself for a job. What can you do to help? Four months later, I hired her to be our director of resettlement. And we haven't looked back. And she's worth her, you know, she is worth an infinite amount of resource, money and resources. She's, she's a treasure. I, I, could, I wish I could clone her. I wish I could clone people like Trevor. Um, that's, the, that's what this organization is made up of, is of can-do people who when they see a problem, they just go after it with gusto. Yeah, that's awesome. We we all we love Trevor's uh, his passion and his heart. That's one thing he he, uh, he definitely has a lot of. He's incredible. I love Trevor. So, one thing we always try to do with the guests is you know give them a little bit of space at the end just to leave a closing word. Is there anything you'd like to close with? Yeah. Um... I would say this. I would say to, to folks listening, um, if you've served with a translator, you know what to do. 
your brothers and sisters are, are, are calling you to the fight. We need backup. We need, we need help. If you're just learning about this for the first time, please go and get yourself educated and then understand something. Ultimately, history is made by people who show up. This organization didn't exist four years ago. It exists now. And in that time, we've been able to help 4,000 plus people resettle in the United States. But the, 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 the reality is we have at the very least another 30,000 to go. Because every one of those applications we were talking about, the 10,000 that are pending in Afghanistan, the 1,000 that are pending in Iraq, each one of those applications represents a family of at least three people who, quite frankly, need you to do the right thing right now and get in the fight. History is made by people who show up. I'm calling you to service. We need you to show up. Your country needs you. We need your help doing the right thing. Please help us. Well, Matt, thank you so much for being here. Uh, thank you for taking care of your troops, taking care of your interpreters. We, we really, I, I can't thank you enough for what you're doing and for your time today. Yeah, Matt, thank you guys. Time. We really appreciate uh, it. My pleasure, guys. As it's an honor to be, uh, it's actually my first podcast ever. So, uh, <laughs> honored awesome. to be with you guys. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. Well, with that, I'm going to sign off. This has been Frank Boyce. And this is Axel Clark. Uh, so, no one left behind everyone. Check them out on Facebook, the website, and Twitter. Have a great week, everyone. Cheers.